If you have a Bible, if you could... So we're looking at Joshua chapter 22 today, and we'll start at verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is, in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. The people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, Any, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. They came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this what day in a rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of pure, from which even yet we have not yet cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God, the Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. He knows. Let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in in time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and you people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, to be a witness between us and you, between our generation after and, uh, and us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in the presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion of the Lord. And we thought... If this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. 
Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Well, misunderstandings can have uh, very dramatic consequences. Uh, For example, in 1977... Uh, Jimmy Carter was giving a speech uh, in Poland. Uh, This was during the Cold War period. And he was giving this very routine speech on New Year's Eve 1977. But it turned into a speech that was anything but routine. The translator didn't quite understand the nuances of how to translate English into Polish. For example... He said, Jimmy Carter said that he wanted to learn your opinions and understand your desires for the future. But the translator translated this as, I desire the Poles carnally. Later, the president pointed out how he had left the United States to visit Poland and how he wanted to see the people in Poland. And the translator translated this as he had abandoned the United States never to return again. He said that he was happy to be in Poland. This became that he was happy to grasp at Poland's private parts. He praised the uh, the Constitution of Poland, the Constitution of 1791, and the translator translated this as he believed that the Constitution was subject to ridicule. Misunderstandings can have dramatic consequences. Another example, uh, misunderstandings can even be deadly. There's a story about a young man named Willie Ramirez who uh, lost his mobility because of a misunderstanding. Uh, they only spoke Spanish, and so his parents brought him there and admitted him to the hospital, and they said that he was intoxicado, which can mean that you're drunk, but it also can mean that you've ingested some kind of poison or some kind of substance so that you're sick. Well, they took it that to mean that he was drunk, and so they treated him as symptoms of being drunk. Uh, but he, in the process, he had bleeding on his brain, and that delay caused him to become a quadriplegic. And later, his family sued the hospital for $71 million and won. But the biggest example that I could find of a misunderstanding that potentially could have had catastrophic implica- implications was a misunderstanding that happened during the course of World War II. 1945, the Allied forces dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and in the process, after the radiation poisoning, uh, over 250,000 people are likely to have died in those uh, atomic bombs. But what some historians believe is that those atomic bombs didn't need to be dropped. Uh, Just a few days before that, 10 days before, in July 1945, the Allied leaders met together and they drafted this declaration called the Potsdam uh, Declaration. And in this declaration, they called for Japan to surrender completely and unconditionally. And they said in that declaration that any negative response on the part of Japan would be met with an utter 
and swift destruction. Sometime after that, uh, interviewers were interviewing the Japanese premier, uh, Suzuki, and uh, they were asking him what his response was to this declaration. And he responded by saying the word mokutsatsu, which can be translated as no comment, as in, and likely what he meant was that he had no comment, he was thinking about it, they were kind of deciding what to do in response to this declaration. So it says mokutsatsu. But another way of translating that is that you can translate it as to treat silently with contempt. Or, in other words, to believe that it's not worthy of a comment. And that's the way that news media translated it. And they translated around the world that the Japanese premier thought it was not worthy of comment. They didn't believe that, they, that he treated it silently with contempt. This angered the American leaders and, in essence, led to the dropping of the atomic bombs. Now, we don't know for sure if, if, if that would have been the, the last course of action anyways, but we know it didn't help the situation. Misunderstandings can be very deadly and can have dramatic consequences. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we see a near disaster. We see a near civil war breaking out between the eastern and western tribes of Israel. And to kind of understand this story, we need to kind of have a little background information about the eastern and western tribes. The eastern tribes of Israel, uh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they were the first one to re- ones to receive their inheritance when they entered into the Promised Land. And their inheritance was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, hence being the eastern tribes. And so they conquered that land first. But Joshua commanded the eastern tribes that even though they had their land and were settled, that their fighting men needed to go and fight with the people of Israel, with the western tribes, until they conquered their land. Now in the passage that we're looking at today, all the tribes are kind of settled for the most part in their lands And we see that the eastern tribes have been faithful to do what Joshua has called them to do. They've been faithful to their brothers, and they have fought with Israel until they've inherited and settled in the the land. And so we see that Joshua commends them for their faithfulness to God in fighting with them. And then they're on the way home, and apparently on the way home, they built this altar of witness. They built it on likely the western side, on Israel's side, but it was of imposing size so they could see it across the river, most likely. And as soon as the western tribes see this altar, they are enraged and they're ready to go on the war path to fight against the eastern tribes. They send a delegation consisting of Phinehas, the son of a priest who had been involved in mitigating a previous situation that was similar. And they send the ten uh, heads of the tribes of Israel. And they go to them and they really let them have it. They say, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning this way, uh, this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? And you can understand why they would have this response because uh, we see throughout the history of Israel that any idolatry or sin is met with strict 
judgment. And so we see that with the case of Achan, remember we looked at the story of Achan, how Achan stole some of the devoted goods and that caused Israel to lose in battle and eventually him and his family lost his life. Also in the book of Numbers, which we didn't look at, uh, there was a situation at the city called Peor where a number of people in Israel started following after a false god named Baal. And as a result of that, a plague came upon Israel and 24,000 people died. And so it's understandable why the people of Israel would be concerned about a possible idolatry situation that's happening at this altar of witness that these eastern tribes would be setting up an altar to sacrifice or have a rival place for sacrifice or maybe even to sacrifice to foreign gods. So it's understandable why they would be upset and it's understandable why they would have such a swift response. But we see that the eastern tribes have no malintent. They simply construct the altar not because of idolatry but for the opposite reason. They want to continue in the worship of Yahweh, the true God. The eastern tribes were on the east side of the Jordan, separated from everybody else. And so they feared that in times to come, the children of the western tribe and their descendants would one day say, hey, you guys are over there, we are here, you have no part of us. If you had a part of us, you would be on this side of the Jordan. And this, is the, this Jordan is the boundary, the separator. And so you have no part in Israel. You're not a part of God's chosen people, and you cannot worship with us. And so really at the heart of what they're, looking, they're, they're trying to do is they're trying to continue the worship of God so that they would be recognized as the people of God. And so they set this altar up as a kind of representation of God's altar in Shiloh and as a witness between the people of Israel and them that they're a part of the, the people of Israel. And they go so far as calling down God's judgment upon them if they were truly acting in rebellion against God. I think there's a couple of things that we can learn from this passage. The first thing I think we can learn is that we need to seek to understand other people first. We need to seek to understand others. We see in, in this conflict that both parties have an equal zeal for the Lord. It's not as if one party is doing something wrong and the other is trying to correct them. Both of them have a zeal for the Lord. The one party, the western tribes, want to ensure that there's no idolatry among the people of God. And they want to ensure that God's judgment doesn't fall upon them. The eastern tribes are trying to ensure that the worship of Yahweh continues. That they will always be a part of the people of God. And their children and their descendants will be able to worship God in freedom. So both of them have a zeal for the Lord. Both of them are seeking the right things, but there's a conflict. And I think as believers in Christ in the church, oftentimes that happens. You can have two believers or two groups of believers that both equally have a zeal for the Lord, but they find themselves in conflict. The Barner Group uh, did, a re- did some research and they found that of millennials who don't go to church, they found that 87% of them believe that the church is judgmental. Now some of that's a little bit misguided, I think, but some of, them, some of that is right. Part of their evaluation is right. Often I think we speak first and we listen second. We judge first and then we find out more about the situation. 
There's a story about a trapper, a widowed trapper who lived in the Alaskan wilderness in a very, very remote area. And uh, he had a little two-year-old son, and they ran out of food, and there was nowhere to go. They couldn't go to a store. There was no town nearby. And they ran out of food, and they were starting to starve, and so he made the decision he would have to go out in the midst of this terrible snowstorm and try to get some food for him and his son. And so he left his son uh, under the care of his faithful dog, who had always been faithful to him. So he goes out, and he looks for food, and while he's out, this terrible windstorm comes up, the snow just gets uh, deeper and deeper, and he's not able to come back, and he has to stay overnight under some shelter in the woods. Well, the next morning, he comes back, and he sees the cabin door is open. He enters into the cabin, and he sees his dog there with blood all over his lips. And he thinks to himself, I know... My dog, he got hungry, and he ate my child. So in a fit of rage, he grabbed his axe and killed his dog. Then he goes and he looks for any faint remembrance of his son. Thinks, maybe there's a slight chance that he, my son could be alive somewhere. So he looks around the house, finally hears a sound of his son coming up from underneath the bed. And he goes and he finds his son underneath, and his son is perfectly fine, doesn't have a scratch on his body. So he goes and he picks up his son, then he turns around and then he sees in the corner that there's a wolf dead in the corner with blood all over him. And he finds out that his son, that his dog had actually protected his son. I think sometimes we act before we know, we judge before we understand. As Christians, we become expert at judging other people when we don't know all the facts. Maybe it's in regard to kind of a debatable issue, like uh, alcohol use. You know, and maybe we look at someone who partakes of alcohol and we think of think, look down upon them. Or maybe, on the other hand, we look at someone who abstains from drinking alcohol and we look at them as being a prude and stuck up. And then, but then if we look beneath the surface, maybe we find that both of those believers have an equal zeal for the Lord. They've come to different conclusions, but they both are trying to honor the Lord in their decisions. You know, or maybe it's with media use. You know, some of us maybe choose to watch this show or that show or this movie or that movie, and we can be quick to judge other people who either choose not to or choose to watch those things. Maybe it's judging the way other people worship. Maybe we make assumptions about some spirit, somebody's spiritual state because of how they worship. You know, if, if you raise your hands, we think, you know, that person maybe is too theatrical. They just want attention. Or on the other hand, we might see someone that doesn't raise their hand and think, well, they're not even worshiping. And we make these judgments about other people, but when we look beneath the surface, sometimes we find that both people could be equally worshiping the Lord. You know, a person in the most conservative denomination that, you know, would never raise his or her hands, just sits, stands like this, singing old hymns, he could be worshiping just as much as someone in the most charismatic tradition that's running around the aisles and dancing. It's all a matter of the heart. And sometimes I think we judge 
too quickly before we know, before we understand people's hearts. Maybe we judge a person who comes to church in tatters, clothes, reeks of alcohol. But when we dig beneath the surface, we find out that person's been struggling with alcohol for years. And they've made that step of faith to come to church. They've never come to church before, but they want to get their relationship with God right. And they've done everything they can to get to church today. We need to understand before we speak. We need to know before we correct. We need to give people the benefit of the doubt and recognize that we're often wrong in the way that we perceive other people. Jesus gives us a pattern for how to deal with people in our life that sin against us. Matthew 18, 15-17 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So four steps. Go privately to your brother. Bring two or three witnesses. Bring it to the church. And if he doesn't listen, treat him as you would an unbeliever or sinner. I think in our culture, what we often do is we reverse that order. We treat them as an unbeliever or a sinner. We tell other people in the church, tell two or three other people. And then the last thing we do is talk to that one person. This is never the way that it should be. Jesus calls us to go and talk to our brother or sister privately first. And I think the amazing thing of when that happens when we talk to a brother or sister about something that maybe they've harmed us by doing, what often happens is that we find that maybe they didn't even intend to do it. Maybe it was a complete misunderstanding. I think that's part of the reason why Jesus calls us to go to that person first. Often we'll, when we bring something to someone, they'll just be surprised that it even happened. They had no recollection that they were hurting us by their actions or our behavior. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes it, it, you know, it leads to further uh, steps. But often God brings that reconciliation. And often what happens is when two believers who have that zeal and fervor for the Lord but are in conflict come together and share their disagreements with one another, you, know, you see that other person's heart. You see that they love the Lord and you can bring that reconciliation together because you see their heart that they love Jesus just as much as you do. So we need to understand other people before we point the finger. But not only do we need to seek to understand others, but we also need to rest in who we are. Think about this story from the perspective of the, of the Eastern tribes. They've faithfully fought for their brothers. They've given their lives for their brothers. They didn't have to do that. They already had their land, and yet they faithfully do that. And now all they want to do is build an altar of witness so that people will know that they're part of the people of God. They just want to continue their worship of God. And now their brothers are coming at them on the warpath, ready to fight against them. Treating them as idolaters or traitors. But look at their response in verse 22. In the ESV it says, The Mighty One, God, the Lord, the Mighty One, God, Yahweh. 
In the Hebrew, there are three words in this passage for the, for the word God. El Elohim and Yahweh. They're repeated twice in this passage. And we could translate this passage in a similar way just as God, God, God. God, God, God. I don't know fully why uh, the author, or, or why these uh, Reubenites and Gadites said it exactly in this way, but I think that they're trying to communicate that the, everything they've been doing, they've been doing for the glory and favor of God. They're calling down God as a witness. They say, God, 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 He knows. He knows the truth. He knows our hearts. The truth is, we live in a world that's often mixed up. And as Christians, sometimes we'll be misunderstood. Other people might take something that we did or something that we've said and maybe put their own spin on that and maybe interpreted that in a negative light. And was, you know, there's certain things that we can do to try to communicate our intentions clearly. You know, the eastern tribes could have communicated this to the western tribes. But there's some things in our life that maybe are outside of our control. And sometimes people might misinterpret what we're doing and following the Lord. And they might even question whether we're really believers, especially people from the outside, from the world. They might look at us and you know, maybe point out a sin in our life and say, are you really a believer if you did this or this? Maybe it's even something in our past that we can't even control. But they'll point the finger and say, are you really a believer? Kind of similar to what the Eastern tribes worried about. They're worried that their children would have the Western, people, Western tribe say to them in future days, you have no portion with the Lord. You are not a part of the people of God. You have no portion with the Lord. But the Eastern tribes thought to themselves, if we can point to that witness, that altar of witness, we can say, that monument, it's a picture uh, of the, temp- or the altar in Shiloh, a representation that we're part of the children of God. And so they could point to that altar of witness. As believers in Jesus, we also have an altar of witness. One that's outside of us and one that's inside of us. We have a witness outside of us in the cross. The cross communicates once and for all that God is for us. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? As it says in the book of Romans, if God did not spare His own Son, will He not also give us all things? And so we can look at the cross. If anyone questions us, we can look at the cross and find mercy and forgiveness. But we also have an internal witness. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. For those of us who are believers, the Spirit lives inside of us and testifies that we are God's children. And so believers, we do everything that we can to follow after God. We do everything that we can to have a clear conscience before God. But if, we're, if we've done that, even if we're misunderstood, even if we're judged by others, we can look to the cross, look to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, who's that, who are that altar of witness for us. And we look at the fact that if God is for us, who can be against us? That there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. 
We can rest in the fact that though people might accuse us, God's judgment is ultimately all that matters. So we need to rest in who we are. Is the seventh inning of the world uh, of Game Seven uh, of the world, 2016 World Series? The Chicago Cubs were leading six to three and hoped to bring in uh, the very good relief pitcher Aroldis Chapman to get the final outs. As some of you know, the Cubs hadn't won a World Series in over a hundred years, and they believed many people believed that they were cursed. An Indians double and a two home run later, and the game was tied. Cleveland had all the momentum. Cubs fans felt that all too familiar feeling that many of us Bills fans feel. Now the wheels are going to come off. But then it started raining pretty heavily. And the field crew of Progressive Field rolled out the tarp on the field. And everybody had to wait, and this was after the ninth inning, they had to wait for the tenth inning to begin. And in that time frame, uh, the Cubs kind of deflated and looking to the, thinking that they're maybe cursed, deflated because of the opportunity they gave up, or just sitting there. And one of the outfielders for the Cubs, Jason Hayward, called his team together and he exhorted them to remember who you are. He reminded them of the things that they had done. He reminded them that they were the best regular season team, uh, had the best standings in baseball. He reminded them they were victors in two other games of the playoff or two other rounds of the playoffs. He reminded them that they were the team that came back from a 3 to 1 deficit to Forbes game 7 in the World Series. It was their game to win as much as it was to lose. Inspired by his speech, the Cubs rallied for uh, two go-ahead runs in the top of the 10th inning. And they won their first World Series in 108 years. Because they remembered who they were. As believers, we need to remember who we are. We need to remember that we're children of God. No matter what other people say, no matter what judgment they may have, if our hearts are pure before God, if we're children of God, we can rest in that identity of who we are. As believers, we need to seek to understand one another, know their story before we judge. We need to rest in who we are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word that speaks to us. Lord, I pray that as a church, as individuals, in our families, that we would be people who listen first, speak second. That we would seek to understand other people and their stories before we offer a word of correction, before we think we understand what's going on in their hearts, that we would seek to understand them so that then we can speak truth. Lord, I pray that as believers we would remember who we are in Christ. We would remember that we are chosen before the foundation of the world. We would remember that you loved us so much that you died on the cross for our sins. We would remember that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us who reminds us and testifies the fact that you're children, that we're your children. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that confidence, that we would have hearts that are pure, hearts that are clear before you, and that we would seek you in all that we do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.